we're in Luke, and as I said last time, we are doing what's called the travel narrative, and that's the series of parables that Yeshua tells on his way to Jerusalem for the last time. You can see on the chart behind me that they are structured as a chiasm, and last time we did an introduction and we did follow me in both Luke 9 and 10 as well as Luke 18 and 19. So what we'll do tonight is what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And that question gets asked and answered twice in this process. First time is in Luke 10 and then the second time is in Luke 18. Same question, different person asking it each time. Slightly different answers, so we'll talk about that. The book that got me started on all this, read it years and years ago, is Poet and Peasant by a guy named Kenneth Bailey. The whole book is talking about this travel narrative, and he's the one that gave me the outline. As I talk about it, I'm sort of rolling my own, sort of remembering stuff that he said, combination of the two. I'm not trying to plagiarize but to the extent that I do plagiarize, I want to give him credit before I do it, and that way, perhaps not so egregious. I don't remember it well enough to give you precise footnotes as we go along. So just understand that some of the ideas that I get are from his book. One of the things that he talks about, and the insight that he has that I thought was very good, is all of these parables are given in small towns. This is a travel narrative up to Jerusalem. So he's not going through big cities. He's going through small towns. And Bailey's insight, he spent a number of years as a missionary and so forth in Lebanon, Syria, that part of the world. And his assertion, which I don't have any doubt about, is that village life hasn't changed a whole lot in 2,000 years. I mean, certainly they've got cell phones now and computers and all that kind of stuff, but small-town dynamics are pretty much unchanged. So as he's reading these, he's drawing on his insights from having spent years in small towns in the Middle East. So, for example, when we get to the parable of the prodigal son, he would talk to his friends in the Middle East, you know, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, you know, that kind of region. And he says, what would you do to a son that came and asked for his inheritance early? And in, universally, the father says, I would take a very heavy cane and just beat the whop out of that little snot because that's just not done. So he brings that insight into these parables as we go along, and to the extent I remember what he said or have internalized it. I'll be repeating some of that, but understand that a lot of the insights are his. So, what we're going to do is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And as I say, it has two instances here. One is in Luke 10, where we're going to get the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the other one is in Luke 18, where we're going to get the rich ruler. And what you'll see is two people are asking the same question. He gives similar but not identical answers. And that will be important, I think. Now... One of the things that I find very interesting about this particular parable is we don't know what the setting is. So what's happened before is he has sent out 
72 of his disciples. And he sent them out pair by pair, and he's given them authority to heal the sick and over unclean spirits, demons, and to preach the gospel. So they go out and do their thing, and they come back, and they say, wow, even the demons were subject to us in your name. And, and he tells them to, that's not the big deal. The big deal is that your names are written in the book of life. And then in verse 23, I'm in Luke 10, 23, then turning to his disciples, he said privately, which tells me that he has got them off somewhere by themselves. It's useful as you read the dialogue in the Gospels, sometimes the location is important. Dialogue is always important, but the fact that sometimes they give the location is an indication. So in the Matthew parables, the kingdom parables, sometimes he's outside the house, sometimes he goes into the house. And depending on whether he's out of the house or in the house, determines who he's talking to. You see this dance where he's going in and out of the house as he's telling those parables, and that's significant. So here, what he's done is he's turned to his disciples and said privately. So I'm assuming that he is someplace where he can speak privately. And he said, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now, from there, we say, and behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. Well, wait a minute. What do we got a lawyer doing here? There's no transition. He's privately speaking to his disciples. And now all of a sudden this lawyer pops up and it's not at all clear under what circumstances. Often he's teaching and somebody raises his hand and says something. Typically you get a little setup before this. Here it doesn't exist. Also, as we'll see in just a minute, there appears to be a crowd. So in that sense, when it says he turned privately, he may have just sort of done a huddle in the middle of the crowd and talked to his guys, but again, I, I don't know. So 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? All right, now, a couple of things. Obviously, this is a lawyer. Lawyer, in this case, does not mean someone like James who tries civil cases. It means a doctor of the law, someone who has studied Torah and is competent and capable to give rulings on Torah and to argue Torah before a bet did. Comment was that he's calling his disciples together, and it doesn't specifically say the twelve. Because remember, previously, when he had sent his disciples out, he sent 72 of them out. So it's entirely possible that this lawyer is one of his disciples. Now, having said that, the lawyer is trying to put him to the test. So I get the impression that the lawyer is asking him what he thinks is a difficult question. It's sort of like when you go into a group of Baptists and they look at you funny and say, all right, will you eat a ham sandwich? In sort of an accusatory tone, and if you say, no, I don't eat that stuff, they will then turn around and say, well, don't you know that Jesus made all foods clean? What are you, under the law? It has that kind of a flavor. And I'm just 
inferring that from that he wants to put him to the test. So, question becomes, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, one of the things to keep in mind is there isn't anything written that I know of in the Old Testament about eternal life. And yet, at the time the Gospels are written, that seems to be something that is talked about and known. In other words, the lawyer asks it as if he expects this guy to know it. And the same thing will happen with a rich young ruler. And Yeshua himself, of course, talks about eternal life in the Gospels. What I don't know is when that came into normative Judaism. Because as I say, the Torah doesn't mention it. So that I am not sure of. But as I say, by the time we get to the New Testament, everybody's talking about it. So it became, if you will, an object of concern sometime, and I don't know when. So Yeshua, being a good rabbi, answers a question with a question. What shall I do to inherit life? And he says, all right, what's in the law? How do you read it? You're a lawyer. Tell me, what do you see? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, that presents all sorts of theological complications. In fact, I heard a preacher on the radio, I don't remember who it was, basically saying, you don't listen to Yeshua. Yeshua was preaching the law. We aren't under the law anymore. So the way they get around a passage like this, where the Messiah himself, the very Son of God, one of the Trinity, all of which I believe, by the way, says, this is what you'll do, and they're scrambling to figure out how do we make that fit with our theology. And our theology says, we're not under law, we're not under grace, and here's the Messiah saying, follow the Torah, and you'll have eternal life. The comment was, it seems fairly simple, because if you walk in Torah, you're living out your faith, and if you're living out your faith, then you're going to have eternal life. You're saved by faith. That's a decent answer. Not the one I had, but it's nothing wrong with it. His comment was, following Torah is loving your neighbor. I would say exactly the same thing, slightly different. What has happened in the American church is love your neighbor has been transformed into a gooey feeling. And as long as you've got this gooey feeling, you're okay. That's not what the Torah is talking about. What the Torah is, is practical instructions on how to love your neighbor. You don't steal from him. You don't move his boundary markers. You don't talk about him behind his back. You don't commit adultery with him. You don't murder him. All of those things are practical instructions on how you love your neighbor. And Yeshua, in another part of the Gospels, when he's asked what the greatest commandments are, gives this one, love God and love your neighbor. And in Judaism, that does not translate into warm and fuzzy gooey feelings. It 
translates into action and behavior, which is one of the places where I believe that the American church has got it slightly wrong. The other thing I would say is I am firmly convinced that Yeshua is the Son of God, Yeshua is the Messiah, and Yeshua is a member of the Trinity. So if Yeshua is giving one answer here, and then he's going to pull that out from under you in the letters of Paul and give you another answer, what I will suggest is he's cheating. And what much of the church will say is, well, that was a different dispensation. That's where we come with dispensationalism. And what dispensationalism is, is the theological theory that God has different rules for different people at different times in history. And as I am fond of saying, there's a Hebrew word for that, it's called baloney. God is nothing else if not consistent. God's laws and so forth are consistent. Now, God does have a chosen people, and he does give his chosen people a Torah, but he does that because he loves them. We've talked about this lots of times. The Torah is not designed to save anybody. The Torah is designed to help you create a good life and a good society. So it's God's set of rules to how to organize your life and how to organize society so that you will thrive, be at peace, and so forth. Now, there's also covenant aspects where Israel has a covenant with God, and when Israel goes off and worships other gods, then what we're dealing with is adultery. So God gets really grumpy with them when they go into adultery. One, the betrayal. I mean, that's sort of kind of a big one. But the other part of that is when they go into idol worship, which is adultery, they also get carried away by demons and start doing things that are contrary to Torah because they are following false gods. So idol worship always descends into finally human sacrifice and death. And God says don't do that, and there's two reasons. One is it's deadly, it will not do you any good, but reason two is you have a covenant with me. And so if you are chasing after other gods, what you are doing is committing spiritual adultery, and I won't stand for that. There's two aspects there with Israel. Now, Israel is different than the rest of the world. The rest of the world would benefit tremendously by following Torah because the rules there are good. The rest of the world, prior to Yeshua, doesn't have a covenant with God. So when they descend into idolatry, they go the same place Israel goes, which is to child sacrifice, murder, and death, and God finally has it right up to here and destroys them, a la Sodom and Gomorrah, a la several other places in the world. But that's because they have become wicked and evil and he can't stand them anymore, not because they've broken a covenant. Now, let me take it one more step, and I'm going to throw some genealogy at you. This is my thought, it is not scripture. One of the things that happens in the book of Acts is it says very clearly that Yeshua's sacrifice covers everybody. He has covered the sins of the whole world. 
And I also firmly believe that since he sprinkles his blood on the altar in heaven, he does it outside of our time stream. Which is to say that his blood covers David, covers Saul, covers Peter, and covers you and me. One sacrifice for all time for all people. So what Yeshua is saying here is, doesn't say it explicitly, because he has not yet been to the cross. But what I am inferring here, and this is where the genealogy comes in, I'm inferring this. What he's saying is, love God, love your neighbor, live a good life. Your sins are covered. And he doesn't specifically say that parenthetical part, and why doesn't he say that? Why doesn't he tell them that up front? That their sins are forgiven. They weren't ready to understand it. Like, for example, when he says, I'll destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. He's talking about the temple of his body. They're thinking of the stone temple in Jerusalem. What he's talking about here is, in general, how does one inherit eternal life? So what I'm suggesting he's saying is, parenthesis, not saying it explicitly, your sins are forgiven. Now, follow the Torah. And what the Torah will do is prevent you from descending into wickedness. So when you come up before the great white throne judgment, you'll be on the sheep side and not the goat side. That kind of thing. What I will suggest, one of the reasons he doesn't say that, is one of the things that it says in combination of Ephesians 4, and Corinthians 2 is if the powers and principalities had understood that killing the Messiah was going to open the door for the Gentiles to come into the kingdom of God, they never would have done it. So one of the reasons he doesn't say this explicitly at this point in his ministry is because he does need to get crucified. And so if he goes around blabbing, all right, they're going to crucify me, and when I raise from the dead, everybody's going to be forgiven, and all the Gentiles are going to come in. That's a mystery that is hidden from the powers and principalities from before the beginning of time. So he can't talk about that yet. And you don't find out that that's what happened until the book of Acts. That's the parable of the rich man who set up the vineyard and went away, and the tenants then stoned everybody he sends to get the fruit, and finally he sends his son, and they say, aha, that's the heir. If we kill him, the vineyard is ours. What he's talking about are the demons in heaven who say, aha, that's the son. If we kill him, then the vineyard, earth, is ours. So that's why he doesn't disclose that. One of the things that your Sunday preacher will say is, well, yeah, he says, follow Torah and you will live. But nobody can follow the Torah perfectly. And if you sin on one point, then it's all over. And again, that is baloney. It is not true because everybody sins. 
And the problem is not sin, the problem is lack of repentance. What the Torah does is tells you when you have behaved in a shoddy way and gives you a remedy to come back and repent. The idea that, oh boy, if you light a fire on Shabbat, oh, the next fire you see is going to be in hell because you just broke the Torah. That's nonsense. You wouldn't do that to anybody. What makes you think that a loving God would do that to somebody? Anyway, let's go on. So in 28, he said, You have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Yeshua, And who is my neighbor? And notice, he puts him to the test. So this lawyer is kind of argumentative, and he's also what we used to call a spring butt. In every lecture, you have got someone who's got to ask a pertinent question so he can stand up and ask a question. That kind of person, you've all seen them in class. I used to be one, so I recognize them intimately. So this lawyer is trying to justify himself. So Yeshua replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying... Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. Yeshua said to him, you go and do likewise. All right, several things. One is the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. For those of you who have been there, you know what I'm talking about. It's a winding, narrow road with hills on either side. And in fact, during the time of Yeshua, the Romans had garrisons stationed along there to prevent just this kind of thing. It's a place where you could have robbers back up, sort of like your old Western movie, where the robbers go around the hill and up the canyon. Same thing. The other thing is, as you go down this road, since it is a notoriously dangerous road for that reason, People tend to know who else is on the road. You're aware of who's gone before you. You're aware of who's come behind you. So everybody knows what's going on on the road simply for self-preservation. Now, the third thing is the way he has set it up. Notice, by the way, down, 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 down. So it says, a man was going down to Jericho and fell among robbers, stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. By chance, a priest was going down that road, you know, down, 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 until we get to the Samaritan who picks him up and lifts him up and takes him on a donkey. One of the things that is the case in that part of the world, and still is, is you could tell who a person was by how he dressed. Every society has that, but when you're in tribal and village cultures, the way you dress tells who you are. And furthermore, if you're a Hebrew and a man, you would be circumcised. 
So this guy is laying naked in the road, Johnnyology face down. So you can't look at his clothes and tell where he's from. And I'm suggesting it was also probably face down, so you can't even look at him and see if he's been circumcised. So what you have here is a generic human being. There isn't any way to tell, oh, this guy's from my town, or this guy's a Hebrew, or this guy's an Idumean, or whatever. There's no identifying marks on this guy other than the bruises he got from the robbers. Yeshua has set this up so you have a generic human being. The priest, of course, lots of priests at that time lived in Jericho, and they would go up to Jerusalem for their tour of duty in the temple, rotating tours of duty. So the priest, as he is coming down, is ritually clean. He's been purified because he's just come off of a stint in the temple. In order to do that, he's got to be clean. Looks at this guy and can't tell whether he's alive or dead. Now, if he's alive, there's no problem helping him. But if he happens to be dead, or he happens to die while you're helping him, well, you have just had contact with a dead body, and it takes you a week or two to get purified. It's a real pain in the butt. And so he's looking at this, and, um, well, that guy looks like pretty dead to me. I just, yes, I'll just keep moving. Sort of infer that that's what he's thinking. Same thing with the Levite. The Levite doesn't have the same stringent requirements, but I'm suggesting that he may have seen the priest skirt around. Then if the priest can do it, I guess I can too. Now, the way the story is supposed to go, Is it supposed to be a priest, a Levite, and an Israelite? That's supposed to be the sequence. So when Yeshua says a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan, that is a real slap in the face. Because Samaritans, as I'm sure you know, were the people that were brought into the northern kingdom by the Assyrians when the Ephraimites were sent into captivity. They looked at the place and said, all right, what are the local gods? How do we worship the gods in this place? They got themselves a copy of the Torah, and they started following Torah. The Jews never accepted them as Hebrews. In fact, one of the things that happens with Yeshua when he's with the woman at the well is she says, "Uh, you Jews don't even talk to us, and you're asking me for a drink of water? So the fact that the Samaritan shows up as the hero of the story when a priest and a Levite flake out is a real in-your-face kind of an example. Now, the other part about this is the Samaritan, when he does this, is doing so at great personal risk. And he's at risk in several ways. Way number one is the robbers may be still up the draw and they're waiting for somebody to stop and go help this guy and they're going to jump down and go and grab who's trying to help. That's danger number one. Typically one of the things that 
bad guys often use. You'll have somebody pull over to the side of the road with what looks like a disabled car, and you pull over to help, and all of a sudden people come out of the bushes and grab you. That happens today. So the idea that this guy may be a decoy is the other thing that could be going through people's minds. So the Samaritan is at risk for that. The Samaritan is also at risk when he picks this guy up and takes him to the inn. Because we don't know who this guy is. So let me take you back to your old Western movie. So an Indian rides into town with a white man strapped across the back of his horse and says, I found this guy out in the desert. And the settlers say, yeah, sure, Injun. You understand the situation. So if he shows up with this injured guy, and this injured guy happens to be a Hebrew, and he goes into a Hebrew inn, people are going to say, yeah, right. You say you found him. Right. You say he was that way when you found him. Right. So the Samaritan is at risk by stopping in several ways. And that's an important part of the story. Now, the other thing that's important is that the priest is riding a donkey. And that is not stated, but it's true. If I were to say to you, my wife went to Longmont to pick us up some groceries, does anybody think she would have walked? No. She'd have gotten in her car and driven to Longmont, gotten the groceries, thrown them in the back of the car, and driven home. Same thing with a priest. A priest would not be walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. He would be riding. Very possibly the Levite would be riding also. So the fact that the Samaritan has a donkey and picks up this guy and throws him over the back of the donkey, everybody else has the opportunity to do the same thing. And then finally he takes him to an inn and took care of him. One would assume bound up his wounds, got him a place to sleep, got him some food and water, etc. And then took two denarii, and of course you all know your biblical culture. A denarius is a day's wage for a common laborer. Not a day's wage for a lawyer, but a day's wage for a common labor is a denarius. So if you're out threshing wheat, picking grapes, digging ditches, whatever, so what he's given is two days' wages for this guy to be taken care of. And then he said, when I come back through, if you spend any more, I'll cover it. So this guy has gone way above and beyond simply going to the guy and checking to see if he's still got a pulse. He's done very great things with this guy. Part of this is Yeshua is sort of lighting up the lawyer because the lawyer is asking the question to test him and the lawyer is also asking question to justify himself. So the example that Yeshua is giving here is sort of back in your face where you have a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. So a Samaritan knows what to do. What's wrong with you? That kind of thing. You're asking me these stupid questions when even a Samaritan can figure it out? Now, according to my outline here, 
what shall I do to inherit eternal life, goes on to the story of Martha and Mary. So let's read that story, and we'll come back next week, and we'll do the rich ruler, and I will suggest that Martha and Mary are in fact a link between those two stories. So now we're down to Luke 10, 38. Now as they went on their way, Yeshua entered a village. Notice it's explicitly saying he's entering villages. These are small villages. These are not big cities that he's going through. And as I say, that distinction will become important later when we get to the friend at midnight and and some of these other parables. These are agrarian, rural people. So now as they went on their way, Yeshua entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Now, this is one of those things that I'm not sure I understand. I mean, you have two sisters. Why can't Martha tell her sister? I mean, other than to advance the narrative here, I'm not sure why Martha asked Yeshua to tell her. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Now, there's several translations to this. Another translation is, few things are necessary or only one thing is necessary. I kind of like the translation, only one thing is necessary. So let me read it for you that way. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, I will suggest to you There's two links to the story that will follow. One is the question in both cases is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What Yeshua has said about Mary is she has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. You see how this ties into the question of eternal life. Because Mary, in sitting at the Lord's feet and listening to him talk, has chosen the good portion, and that that portion will not be taken from her. So that's why this ties into the question about eternal life. And I will suggest that his answer of only one thing is necessary, we'll talk about that next week. (laughs) 